before we get into too much of anything, I wanted to share with you um, the uh, Oglesby's. Well, that too. I'll get there in just a second. Um, that, but I want to share with you the Oglesby's had a uh, barn fire. Many of you are aware of this already. Uh, I was back and forth with them over the weekend, Levi and Brittany. Thankfully, it wasn't a house fire, right? But it was a barn fire, and there was a lot there. And they're getting that cleaned up, and they, they're getting all oh, the insurance company, you know, and all that stuff getting squared away. But uh, I asked them, I said, you want me to tell everybody? And they said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, so we're all kind of in these things together. And uh, so if they need help or something, I told them, I said, give me a call, and I can contact everybody around here. And uh, so right now they're just kind of waiting until tomorrow and then they'll know what they're going to do. Uh, it was quite a bit of stuff that was lost. Um, they're, they're doing fine. They're just getting over the initial shock. When you stand in the ashes, it's hard to gain perspective, you know. Um, after a little bit, I think they will. I remember when our house caught on fire when I was 16, I think, 17. And as the flames are, you know, coming off the roof, you think, you know, what are we going to do now? But give it a few days or a couple of weeks, and then reality kind of sets in. You, you know, you, your brain gets back to where it's supposed to be, and you realize that, hey, it isn't, it isn't the end of the world. You just, you just move on. Um, so, but uh, I just wanted to share that with you. Also, the second Sunday in the month, I want to share where we are uh, in our giving, um, we are doing very well uh, this year. Our need at this point is $98,478, and giving at this point is $99,702. Um, that is slightly above um, what our need is. I don't know if we've ever had that, ever gotten there, uh, at least in the past five years, but uh, we are there now, and that's that's during a for many, a difficult time. In fact, it's also during a time when, you know, loans were given to churches and all kinds of different things, and and the eldership said, no, no, we're, gonna, we're not going to do that stuff. We're going to continue to give, and we'll continue to do our best and give our best, and we'll see it through, and sure enough, we're on our way, um, and that's a, uh, it's an expression I don't think just an expression of faith, but I, I do think it's an expression of love and care for the body and also responsibility taken for the body, and so I certainly appreciate that. Although we don't want to stay there, um, I asked Ashley, we adjust our giving every year, and when this came across my desk, I, I asked Ashley, uh, have we adjusted our giving for this year? <laughs> she would know. I, I wouldn't. I just ask. Um, and she says, no, we haven't yet this year. And so while this is a good thing, it's also a problem. We haven't adjusted. You know, it means, hey, somebody else carry my weight. You know, so we're, we're adjusting then uh, for next starting next week, we'll adjust for this year. Um, but it, so it's just something to keep in mind, something to bear in mind. But I think seeing that and, and other things in life, I think one of the things that we realize is that we we don't have a generosity problem, okay? This church, this church doesn't have a generosity problem. In fact, 
I think most people you come across, whether in the church or outside of the church, not everybody, but most people you come across really don't have a generosity problem. They all want to, many, many, want to give either time, treasure, or talent in many different situations. Now, not all do and not all can, but the majority, think about it, the majority of people you come across, especially if something bad happens or especially if somebody's hard up against it, people want to give. There's a, there's a generosity desire in a lot of people's hearts. And so I don't think that we have a generosity problem. And I don't think we have a generosity problem here at the church. I do think, however, that we have an acceptance problem. We have an acceptance problem in the church. We have an acceptance problem outside the church. We have an acceptance problem all over the place. An acceptance or a receiving problem. I, I admire... By the way, you ever you ever you ever go up to a to a uh, drive-through and somebody pays for the person behind them, you know, and that goes on for like twenty cars? You ever? You, you ever I admire the person who breaks that. <laughs> I love the person who says, "Thank you very much." Um. They don't have an acceptance problem. There's nothing there that says they have a generosity problem. Why? Is everybody being generous? Or is it really just the first car that was generous? And everybody's got an acceptance problem. One of my pet peeves, and you know what pet peeves are, right? There are things that get under your skin, but you're the only one that really cares about it, right? It ain't going to affect anybody else. It's really not even going to affect your life that much. Uh, and that's, that's what it is. One of mine is, and you've probably experienced this too at some point, and that is when you give a gift to someone. You give a gift, right? You give a gift because it's uh, Christmas time. You give a gift because it's birthday time. My dad turned 71 yesterday, and uh, you know, I, I called him and said happy birthday after I was reminded, call dad, say happy birthday. I'll tell you, my mother, Katrina, and my wife, I don't know. I always get these messages that say, make sure you call this person, whoever it is, what's going on. They do a great job. You've got people like that in your life, right? They say, hey, make sure you do this. Anyway, you give a gift for birthday or whatever. Or you give a gift to show love. You give a gift to show appreciation. You give a gift to show gratitude, whatever it means. And as you give your gift, you see this look on the other person's face, right? This look of horror that says, and then they say... Well, I didn't get you anything. What I want to say, I've never done this. What I want to say is, you don't understand what a gift is. We're not engaging in commerce here. You're not buying this. I wanted to give you a gift. And, and now, really, you've kind of ruined that. You've kind of ruined that gift. Because you think you've got to give something back instead of just graciously accepting. When it comes to gifts, but particularly, you know what I'm talking about. You know where I'm getting. When it comes to the saving grace, the justification, the righteousness given by Jesus Christ, we still have an acceptance problem. We still think, right? 
that I, there's got to be something I've got to do to earn this. An acceptance problem. We don't have a generosity problem. We're going to talk about being justified by faith over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to start with Abraham. Justified by what he believes in. Justified by what he acts in. What is faith? What is faith? Church, faith is trust in action. Trust in action. There is no such thing as simply acknowledging the existence of something and still calling that faith. That's not what faith is. If your trust is not in action, you do not have faith. You are not justified. If it is not trust in action, faith is not merely acknowledging that there is Jesus. Faith is giving your life to him. Trust Jesus to forgive. Trust Jesus that you'll live eternally to pursue the character of Christ, to be transformed, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All of those things are things you're doing. They're responses to your trust. That's what faith is, trust in action. We receive righteousness. Righteousness is something that is given to us, but it is also something we live up to. We receive righteousness by accepting Jesus Christ, and then there's a reason Paul tells Timothy to pursue righteousness because it's also a standing that we live up to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gifts. We thank you for the gift of righteousness. We thank you for the gift of justification. Father, we thank you that we can believe this, that we can trust it, and that it permeates and changes our lives. Father, we ask that you help open our eyes to this truth today, that we will come away knowing, and that we will come away from this series at least, knowing that we can accept this gift, we cannot earn this gift, yet we can live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Justified by their faith. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about Abraham. Abraham is regarded as, um, sometimes two ways, Either father, a father, he's a father of the Jewish nation, or friend. Very often he's a friend of God, right? We, we hear him referred to as a friend of God. We're going to talk about Moses. Moses is thought of as a leader of the, of the people in the Exodus, but also a prophet. This is, this is how he's referred to in Deuteronomy. Since the time of Moses, no prophet has ever arisen in Israel like Moses. This is what it says at the end of Deuteronomy. We're going to talk about David. David we think of as... What? The king, right? We even say King David when we're referring to David. Jesus refers to David as King David. We're going to talk about Paul. Paul is an apostle. That is a follower of Christ with a specific and special mission and specific or special message. And we're also going to talk about, if we have time, we're going to talk about Peter. Peter we think of, he's also an apostle and a follower of Christ with a message, but we think of Peter as a disciple just like you a follower of christ being transformed into who christ is and what christ is i'm curious though at least i think of these men as that way with those titles those definitions i wonder why we don't think of abraham the liar moses the murderer david the adulterer paul the persecutor peter well too many to name right now right He's always messing up. 
Why don't we think of them as that? That's just as true as everything else. Mo, or Abraham was a liar and he was weak in his faith in multiple places and points in his life. Moses murdered people. Hey, person, let's, let's not exaggerate, but isn't that bad enough? David, he committed murder, committed uh, adultery, estranged from his family. Paul, now Paul really was a bad character, right? Persecuting the church, affirming the deaths of people that believed in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Peter, like every other page in, in, some, you know, in, in some of these gospel accounts, Peter's making a mistake here, making a mistake there. There is a reason, church, that we see them as righteous, that we herald them as righteous, that they are defined by righteousness. It is because of their faith shown, that is, trust in action. Their faith is realized by their obedience. Yes, they made mistakes, and we're going to talk about those, but they did not give up. They didn't stop. They were not defined by their low points. They were defined by the righteousness given them through faith. Romans chapter 4 says this, starting in verse 1, What shall we say uh, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? That's righteousness through faith, or justification through faith. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture actually say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This belief is the same word that Jesus uses. Whoever believes in me should not perish but have eternal life. This does not mean acknowledging the existence of. This means giving your life completely over to. Acting upon that faith. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Understand the implications of what Paul's saying here. When we accept a transformation, justification, and righteousness from Jesus Christ as a gift, we are then made, determined, declared, and treated as righteous. When we don't, when we still hang on to this false belief that we are justified by how good a person we are, we are no longer anywhere near righteous. We're far away from righteous. And the more and more we keep thinking that, the further and further away from righteousness we become. The more and more and more we try to be good to save ourselves, the further we go from salvation. Fascinating the way that works, isn't it? It is accepting the truth of Jesus who became sin so that you might become righteousness. You know whose sin? You know what sin Jesus became? Yours. Yours. Your specific sin. Your guilt. Your life. Mine too. So that we might become righteousness. That was the gift. All of these men acted in their faith. Father Abraham, we often think of as a good man. We use Abraham as an example when teaching. We sing songs about Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Uh, we, that comes from Romans. Actually, comes from Galatians and Romans. We see Abraham as larger than life. 
Perhaps we see Abraham as the epitome of righteousness even all through his life. And we may be tempted to think that because of that, he somehow earned this this right to become the father of the Jewish nation. That's what Abraham means, his father. Somehow we might also be tempted to think that Abraham earned the love of God by being one of the very few good men that ever lived. This can be disheartening to those who want to follow Jesus. How do I possibly live up to the standard of Abraham? That's the ironic thing. There's actually a higher standard. There's a higher standard than that that you have to live up to. You can't do that one either. Neither can I. How can we live up to the standard of Abraham? It can be disheartening to those who seek eternal life. It can add to uncertainty, the false idea that only the good inherit eternal life. After all, we know that that's not true. Jesus told us nobody's good. He was approached in Mark 10, good teacher. The, 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 the person said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turned around and said, why do you call me good? Nobody's good. Nobody's good except for God alone. There was kind of a double meaning he meant with this uh, response. But he reminds us that nobody is good. We know also that God reminds us through Paul in Romans 3, for all have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. So the question remains, who could possibly be justified? How could your life be justified? How could you be considered righteous? Who could possibly inherit eternal life? Listen to this, write this down, know this, tattoo it on your brain, on your mind. Life does not belong to the good or the bad. And it certainly does not belong to the good or bad by human standards. Eternal life belongs to the justified. That's it. Eternal life belongs to the justified. So that leads us to the question, am I justified? Is my life justified? Is my existence justified? Are the decisions I make justified? Are my victories and my failures justified? Am I justified? I want to know that. Before the 11th hour. I want to know that before I breathe my last. To be justified. A couple of definitions. To be justified is to be declared. And therefore made righteous. Don't worry we'll get to righteous here in a minute. To be declared and therefore made righteous. This means that we are righteous in the sight of God. That we are accepted as righteous. And that we are treated as righteous. You know that? When you give your life to Jesus Christ, God treats you as a righteous person. He doesn't give you everything you want. He doesn't give you ease. He doesn't give you comfort. He doesn't give you all those things that you demand in the moment. But He gives you, He treats you as righteous, eternally righteous. And why? On account of what Jesus has done. Okay. So if we're justified, we're declared righteous. What does righteous mean? There's a number of definitions for righteous. Basically, behavior that's morally justifiable or right. But that behavior is characterized by the world. That's, that standard is by the world. These standards of morality and justice and virtue and uprightness. What is the standard of the Bible when it comes to righteousness? God's own perfection. See, we thought we couldn't live up to Abraham. God's own perfection is righteousness, the biblical definition. In every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word. You begin to see how this justification is a gift. How we cannot hope to be righteous on our own. 
because we don't always live up to the moral perfection of God. By the way, sometimes I think we do. I think there's many people who do in a particular, specific, given moment. But over the span of our life, we don't live up to the moral perfection of God. We don't even come close. And yet we are still seen as righteous and made righteous if we accept the gift. Again, righteousness is something given. It is not earned, but it's also something lived up to. We are justified by trusting in God. Genesis 12, 1-5, the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all the peoples on earth, that's you and me, will be blessed through you. So Abraham, verse 4, so Abraham went. That is a huge passage. That's a huge uh, uh, phrase. So Abraham went. Realizing that God gave him this command is not faith. What's faith? So Abraham went. That's faith. Trust in action. Believing God. Living that out in our lives. And so he went. He went with Lot, his nephew. He went with his wife. He was 75 years old when he did this. He took all the possessions he had. This was not a small act. This was a major act. This was a big move in the trust of God. Yet Abraham sinned. Abraham sinned. He is seen as righteous because of his trust in God. But Abraham sinned. In fact, if you read through his life, it's very much like yours. That's why I wanted to talk about Abraham. He sinned time after time after time, moment after moment. There was failure after failure. But he doesn't give up on honoring, believing, trusting in who God is. They have a very unique relationship. Their relationship is very similar to Moses and God. I mean, it's, it's earthy. It, it, it's, they're, they're yelling at each other sometimes. I mean, there's a close relationship there. And yet he still makes mistakes. The first mistake we read about, and there's many, these are just the ones recorded. First mistake we read about is Abraham lying about his marriage. Lying about his marriage to his wife. He lacks this trust in the moment. Or he's scared, or whatever it might be, and he sins, thinking God may not protect him. By doing this, he also enables other people to sin. Without even knowing that they're sinning, leading them astray. This was not a smart move. This was not a good move. We find this in Genesis 12, starting at verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Oh, he's a peach, isn't he? He's got away with words. Trust me, Abraham, take my advice. Stop there. Don't go any further. You've said enough. But of course, he goes on in verse 13. He says, look, I got an idea. Say you're my sister. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. In verse 13, say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. 
And not only that, Pharaoh now brings Sarai into his home, into the palace. Use your imagination here. He is grooming her to be a part of his harem, sinning himself before God because of the treachery of Abraham. Verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. This is pretty rotten by Abraham. You know what he's doing? Don't, don't, don't try to church this up. Here's what he's doing. He is throwing his wife to the wolves to save his own skin. That's it. There ain't anything more holy than that, all right? I mean, it was a scoundrel move. But notice God's faithfulness. Even in Abraham's moment of weakness, God continues to be faithful. His faithfulness to Abraham, his promise given, even when Abraham was weak in his faith. And by the way, this isn't the worst of it. Even after God rescues him from this, Abraham does it again. He does it a second time in his life. I don't know how, I don't know why God's got that kind of patience until I look in the mirror, right? Now I begin to understand. Now I begin to see. Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there. This is later on in his life. Moved on from there to the region of the, of the Negev and lived near Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said, to, said of his wife Sarah, she's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. By the way, Isaac, Abraham's son, does the very same thing to this very same guy. First of all, you'd think he'd learn, all right? Second of all, I, I, don't, I don't know how this works. I don't know if, because if, Isaac is born later, I don't know if he tells Isaac about this. Hey, I got, a, I got a good plan for you. Do this. But you see the same thing happening in Isaac's life. That's one of the bad things you see. You don't know a whole lot about Isaac. You know, there's a wedding, a well, and, and a lie. That's pretty much Isaac's life right there. And this is one of them. He does the same thing. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said, you're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. Why would God say this to Abimelech? I mean, he knows that, he, that, that the king took Sarah in ignorance. Why? Because God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham, and he's going to see that promise through. He made a promise to you and I. Believe in Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus Christ. You're justified. You're made righteous. You've inherited eternal life. That's the promise, and he's going to see it through, even when we are weak. Because we're not justified by our weaknesses. We're not defined by our mistakes, church. We're defined by our faith. Abraham sinned again. And the very same sin. He returned to his vomit, right? I mean, that's, that's what Scripture says, Proverbs 26. You don't get the chance to use this little chestnut once in a while. As a dog returns to his vomit, so fools repeat their folly, right? was introduced years ago to the Jelly Belly, you know, Jelly Beans. I think Ben introduced me to these. There's one, the, 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 the trick ones, you know, there's one that's vomit flavored. It's disgusting, right? It strikes me that someone has to determine whether or not this really tastes like vomit. Taste this, and I'll taste that. You tell me. Are we on the right track here? That's, that's the job. 
The intern gets that job. You think your job's rough? That'd be a long day, testing those things out. But that's what the fool does. Sounds disgusting, yet we do the same thing in our sin. We return to the same sin over and over and over again. Why on earth would God keep covering Abraham's sin here? Why does he keep covering ours? Because he made a promise. And he loves us. He said, you give your life to Jesus, your life is justified and I will treat you as righteous. That's why he keeps covering our sins. That's why he covers Abraham's. God made a promise, and when he makes a promise, he sees it through. God God does not, like man, promise in haste. When God says you're forgiven, when God says you're justified through Jesus, that's what he means. And we say, even in my sin, church, I say because of your sin, because of mine. And now perhaps we see the worst offense in Abraham's life, and these are just the ones recorded. It's a horrible, horrible scene in Scripture. Again, you can use your imagination, caused by this same man that was called a friend of God. Instead of being patient with God, that's sinning against God. Instead of waiting, Abraham, waiting on Isaac to be born, Abraham takes a servant woman and has a child by her. And to make matters worse, when Sarah changes her mind about the whole thing, too late, by the way, Abraham refuses to take responsibility. And Sarah ends up mistreating Hagar so that she takes her baby, Hagar takes her baby and flees into the desert. So after Abraham in Genesis 16 had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife, slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise and to separate herself from Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And now this good, upstanding man says this in verse 6. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. They abused her. That's all this is. This isn't some sacrifice. This isn't some mystical prophecy fulfilled. It's abuse of this woman. It's a serious offense, particularly against God. Not only does Abraham conspire with his wife, refuse to wait, to have patience on God, but they do this horrible thing. And if you read through the Psalms in many places in Scripture, you find you're playing with fire because God's got a real soft spot for women and children in this condition. It seems, I mean, if you look at it and you really see it for what it is, you use your imagination, it seems unforgivable. Do you have any of those? You know, one of those? You think about your life and you think that it's still dirty. And you think, how on earth can God justify this life? It's those thoughts we don't even want to think about, right? They're they're in the back of the head, back of the mind. And once in a great while, we'll open that door. There is no sin too big, too drastic, too horrible, too egregious that Jesus is too weak to forgive it. Don't think of Jesus as weak. He's a lot stronger than you are, a lot stronger than I am. He has become your sin 
That really bad one? Yeah, he became that one too. That's why you're justified by what he did. God reestablishes the conditions of his promise to Abraham in chapter 17. And I don't see this as coddling Abraham for his lack of faith. It seems more to be a reprimand and a reminder that it's by faith that these promises are fulfilled. It's by trust that these promises are fulfilled. Genesis 17, 1 through 5, when Abram was 99 years old, this is a year before Isaac was born, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. This is a reminder. I am God Almighty because they've been through this before. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I'll make my covenant between you and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer would you, will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. This is contrition. This is Abraham with his face to the ground being reminded of the faithfulness, the trust that's demanded of him. This is where the rebuke comes. This is where the change is made even in the name. This is where circumcision starts in chapter 17. This covenant response signifying a growing nation. This is where Abraham is now face down in the dirt. It's where God reminds Abraham, I am not playing around with my promises. He expects faith. He expects trust. In order to be blameless, by the way, Genesis 17, in verse 1 again, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Sometimes we read that incorrectly. We read that with a comma in there. Walk before me faithfully, and while you're at it, Abraham, try really, really hard to be blameless. That's not what God says. God says, walk before me faithfully, and therefore be blameless. Therefore, be righteous. That's how that's written. That's how that command is given. Trust me with your life. And therefore, you will be righteous. Stop trying to earn this righteous standing. Give your life to me, your trust to me, says God. And I'll fill in the gaps. Finally, after 100 years, Abraham has a son, Isaac. This is the offspring of the promise of God. This is the one we've been waiting on. This is the one Abraham and Sarah have been looking forward to for years. And God tells Abraham to sacrifice him. Tells Abraham to kill his son. See, this is where we start asking about our faith, our trust. How's our faith? How's our trust? By the way, don't ask that question. Don't ask the question, would I do such a thing? That's a bad question to ask yourself. I'll, I'll tell you why here in a minute. But this is the request. This is the command of God. Sacrifice Isaac. We know that this is a test given by God to Abraham to actually strengthen Abraham and his family and strengthen his resolve. But God tells Isaac to sacrifice his son. By the way, it's only been in twice ever that God ever tells anybody ever to sacrifice a human being. There's things in Scripture about this. You've got to be careful what you read. If you, if you ever come across this, ask me and I'll, I'll walk you through it. 
It's only happened twice. With Isaac, God stays Abraham's hand. And the other one, Jesus himself. That's it. It is completely against the character of God to do such things. But Abraham does it. See, this is where trust comes in. This is where faith comes in. This is where understanding the character and nature of God comes in. This is what it means to grow in faith and give your life to God. After all, this is later in Abraham's life. He is growing in his faith and his trust of God. Abraham does it. Genesis 22, 1 through 4 says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Abraham didn't know that part. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and did it. He loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, that's three days of traveling, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Is Abraham crazy? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, in serious, I've asked that question. I wonder if Abraham's crazy. I wonder if he just doesn't care anymore. I wonder if he's just lost his mind to the point that he's not even asking God questions anymore. Or has he just given up? Or does he, in fact, not really love Isaac? I don't know. I've asked the question, is Abraham crazy? He's not that crazy. Look at verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then what? We will come back. That's not a typo. This is trust. This is faith. He said, me and my son, we're going to go away for a while. I guarantee the two of us are coming back. That's what it means to trust. You see, this is why Abraham is justified. This is why he is considered righteous. Same reason you are. Your trust, your faith. He doubles down on it in 7 and 8. Isaac spoke up. He said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire is here, the wood's here. Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered him, I don't think for a second that this is a shot in the dark. Not once do I think this. I think Abraham has come from where he was to who he is in faith and trust in God. He's God said, and he said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham assures his servants of his, of his and Isaac's return. After a three-day journey, reflecting upon the command of God, the promise of God, and the character of God. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who would embrace the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Is Abraham any crazier than we are? I got news for you. If you think Abraham's crazy, so are you. Don't we believe in the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ? Furthermore, don't we believe that Jesus is the substitute sacrificial lamb? Don't think Abraham's crazy. Abraham wasn't crazy. You know what he was? He was right. When everybody else thinks he's wrong. 
A lot of people in the world look at this story and they think for that reason, I'm going to have nothing to do with this God. No, Abraham was right. He was faithful. Abraham could see what other people couldn't see because he had acted upon his belief. He had given his life over to who God is and what God is. And by the way, Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. That's why you don't ask yourself that question, would I do this? That, that's, that's not a healthy thing. It's a nonsensical question at this point. It completely contradicts the character of God. That sacrifice has already been made. So don't, don't torture yourself with that. That's not a thing, okay? Lost my place. This, is, this act of trust is what makes Abraham blameless. It's his trust that justifies his life. It's his trust that even justifies the bad parts of his life. And it's this trust that brings him his definition as a friend of God. It's not the sins that define him. It's not your sins that define you. And it's certainly not your sins that define you before God himself. It's your faith that defines you. And how are you defined? Righteous. The very moral standard of God. Now, do we live up to that? Absolutely. We're going to learn next week that God in no point is condoning any sin that Abraham does. We get to look at Moses. Moses committed sins in his life, but there was one sin he committed in the sight of all of Israel. And God, God reprimanded him very, very harshly. So much so that he wasn't able to go in with the rest of them. He wasn't able to see what he wanted to see. He's not condoning sin. He's saying, you're justified in spite of it because of what Jesus did for you. It's his trust in God. Isaac lives, Jake has Jacob and Esau, Jacob has 12 sons, become the patriarchs of the great Jewish nation. Abraham has a lot of physical descendants, but he also has spiritual descendants, that's you and me. Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We'll close with this, Romans 4, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. That's that scene there on the mountain. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Justified by our faith, church, we are not defined by our mistakes. We are not defined by our sins. We are defined by our faith. Your faith is lived out in action. Trust in action. That's faith. You will be tempted. I have been tempted a lot in life, but I've been tempted often to listen to the whispers that say, I've got to earn it. We get tempted to look at the gift of Jesus Christ and instead of joy, a look of horror comes over our face face, and we say, oh, I didn't get you anything. (laughs) 
God made you. Give him yourself. That's what Jesus wants. That's all you can give. The church, I got to tell you, that's a wonderful response to the gift of justification. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you that we are justified, that we are seen and made and treated as righteous. Thank you, Father, for honoring your promises. We ask, Father, that you help us to remember this, to live this out as we go through our week. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.
thank you, Father, that we get to be reminded of the love and justification of Jesus, that he became our sin. And so, Father, help us to think about that. Help us to, to identify ourselves in that way. That, that we don't need to pretend as though we're showing up in the end. That we can lay our life uh, at the foot of the cross in the hands of Jesus, that he might protect it forever. Father, we thank you for an incredible gift. In Jesus' name.